Welcome back to the Whip Around, a weekly women's basketball show hosted by the Swish Appeal Podcast Network. I'm your host, Sabrina Merchant, and it is the most wonderful time of the WNBA season. We're talking WNBA semifinals this week with the top four teams in the regular season having advanced to the second round of the playoffs. Later on in the show, we're going to go in deep on the Storm Aces series with special guest M. Adler of the Next. So for now, I'm going to focus in on Chicago, Connecticut, which I think most people would agree was a very exciting game, but not necessarily a very aesthetically pleasing game. And that's exactly the way Connecticut is going to want to play out this series. It was very clear last year when Connecticut and Chicago met up in the WNBA semifinals, that time with Connecticut as the higher seed, that Chicago was able to dictate the pace of the series. They got Connecticut sped up in the half court with their hedging on pick and rolls. They were the ones who were able to play their beautiful game in transition. They were the ones who were able to own the paint with Stephanie Dolson and Candace Parker. And this time around, none of that beautiful basketball was to be found. This was very much a physical, we're going to foul on every possession and force the refs to call something, and they're just not going to call fouls every single time around. In fact, Connecticut was called for an astonishingly low number of fouls in this game. I believe they set a WNBA record. But they were definitely able to exert their physicality, their aggressiveness. I think that little dust-up between Kalia Copper and Courtney Williams where neither player wanted to give up possession of the ball before a jump ball was called was entirely indicative of just the type of fire that both teams are bringing to this series. And... Frankly, Connecticut just has more of those dogs <laughs> like Alyssa Thomas, John Quill Jones, Bree Jones, Courtney Williams, Odyssey Sims. This is a team of players that, oh, and Dewana Bonner. Let's not forget Dewana Bonner, who was absolutely wonderful for a player who shot four of 16 from the field. I mean, this is exactly the kind of muck that the Sun wants to play in. And I think they have to be very happy with the way they were able to dictate the terms of game one, especially after sitting all offseason with the sting of having lost to Chicago as the higher seed and then getting swept by the sky 4-0 during the regular season, even if the majority of those games were, like game one, decided by one or two possessions. And while I do think that Chicago has many more areas to improve upon than Connecticut does, the fact that Connecticut was able to finally break that barrier I think is massively important. But let's talk a little bit about what Chicago can do going forward. I mentioned her name earlier, Stephanie Dolson. I think her physicality is really missed in this particular matchup. For whatever reason, Dolson has just been phenomenal against the Sun for most of the past few seasons. You saw it even when the Liberty matched up against Connecticut this year. And this is the first time all year where I've really felt that Chicago has lost something when replacing Dolson with Emma Mieseman. That's not to say that Emma Meeseman isn't a fantastic player. I voted for her as my old WMA second team member. She was an all-star this year. The passing creativity, the defense that she provides, all incredible assets for this particular Chicago Sky team. 
but she doesn't provide that heft, that toughness that Stephanie Dolson does, and neither does Azari Stevens, who great size, you know, excellent perimeter shooting, though I think she was a little bit too unconscious with her jumper in game one. There's just a little extra oomph that Steph brings. I mean, her name isn't Big Mama Steph for no reason. Throughout the regular season, the sun have been bested by the sky in the paint and on the perimeter, and it's just untenable to win games when you're being beaten from every area of the court. We know for a fact that the sun aren't going to dramatically change their game so that they start taking as many three-point shots as this guy. It's just not going to happen. So they have to win one of those battlegrounds, and they won the paint in game one. And so as long as they can even the playing field, take control of the paint while Chicago mans the perimeter, which frankly is a far more variable area to score from. Like sometimes the sky just aren't going to hit all their three-point shots. We saw in game one that they went eight of 30 from three-point range, you know, less than 30%. The Sun just need to control what they do well, which is dominating the interior, whether that's with Bree, Alyssa Thomas, Jonquil Jones. We saw the return of the jumbo lineup with all three of those front court players playing next to Dewana Bonner at the two. I thought that was an inspired idea by Kurt Miller to really lean into their size when it's, again, the only advantage that they have against the Chicago Sky. Um, but I do expect that James Wade and the Sky will have counters for when the series returns in Game 2. For one, the backcourt of Courtney Vandersloot and Allie Quigley can't possibly play as poorly as they did in Game 1. I mean, Allie Quigley shot a wedgie and an air ball in the same game, which seems physically impossible for the greatest three-point shooter in WNBA history. Courtney Vandersloot showed absolutely no aggression to score, even when Connecticut was playing her to score and not to pass. Kalia Copper's finishing around the rim just wasn't what you'd come to expect from the 2021 Finals MVP. And Emma Mieseman also looked like she had no interest in shooting the ball. I mean, Connecticut was defending Emma on the perimeter as if she was Alyssa Thomas. Like, this is a player who shot 58% from three during the 2019 Mystics title run, and she's passing up shots from three-point range without even looking at the rim. So yes, Candace Parker put up a stat line that has literally never been seen before in WNBA history, and she looked the part of someone who was ready to take her team to the WNBA Finals, but nobody really joined her. And just the number of players who performed below expectations for Chicago makes you think that the Sky have a really excellent chance of getting back into the series if even one or two of those players get back to the norm, considering it was only a five-point game. But then you look at the Sun side, and Natisha Heideman didn't really hit that many threes. She only had one. Jonquil Jones only played about 25 minutes and can easily assert herself more. So there are ways for both of these teams to improve upon their performances in game one. Definitely a feeling out game to start the series. But I definitely think it was a surprise for Connecticut to actually emerge with a win and reset the tone of this series. As Kurt Miller said, nobody was picking the sun before the semifinals started. I concur. I still think that the Sky are going to win the series. But at least they've applied some pressure on the defending champions. Pressure that the Sky really didn't feel in their postseason run last year when they were ahead in every series. So kudos to the Sun. I look forward to seeing how the Sky respond. This is still a championship team. This is a team that absolutely opened a can of whoop-ass on the Liberty after they lost game one in the first round. And it's a team that's not going to go down this easily. Moving on to the Storm versus the Aces, as I mentioned earlier, I had a great talk with M. Adler, who covers the Seattle Storm and writes the daily briefing for the next hoops. One of my favorite basketball analysts around. It was a pleasure talking to them. And please follow M for their coverage of the Seattle Storm and for Duke women's basketball this upcoming college season. I promise you will not be disappointed.
All right. I'm so excited to be joined by M. Adler, recording from one of my favorite places in the world, Durham, North Carolina. M, how are you doing? It's a pleasure to be here. I'm making great use of the uh, Chronicle office, Duke's Independent Student Paper, and our fancy little microphone in the AV room. The reason why I wanted to have you on was to talk about the Seattle storm. Uh, I know I had asked you to come on earlier in the season, and I'm just very glad that the storm won long enough to finally let us get to talk about Seattle. Um, here we are uh, after game one of the semifinals. They won 76 to 73 in Vegas. I mean, first of all, just a tremendously fun game. I'm so glad that we get this matchup in the WME playoffs because I like watching these two teams play against each other so very much. First question, uh, Vegas had second best offensive rating of all time in the WNBA this year. And it was a bit of a struggle for Seattle to contain them during the regular season. And yet they did a pretty good job, at least in that first quarter, and then sort of just held on for dear life the rest of the game yesterday. What do you think was the biggest change for Seattle in terms of finally being able to get some sort of, you know, hold on that Vegas offense? So I think there's a lot of little like nitty gritty stuff in terms of the basketball Texas mm-hmm. knows that went into it. And I think most of all is that they were able to use different things that they use in the regular season, things that they experimented with from time to time, mm-hmm. because it's a Seattle team that has been deliberately coached by Noel Quinn in a way that they're trying a lot of stuff in the regular season. They're throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks in pretty much every facet of their play, be it lineups, be it Gabby Williams' role on offense, be it the exact defensive schemes they're using. So that when they get to the playoffs, everyone's sort of ready. If at a moment's notice, they say, you know, they want to change the coverage into Wilson. If, you know, they want to go from usually just playing like a shallow drop or hedging on side ball screens. Instead, they're just hard icing so that Asia can't hit, hit on the pop. And they're forcing the guards to beat them downhill and get to the rim quicker than Steph Talbot, than Jewel Lloyd, uh, than Rian Jenneray, which is, a, you know, a tricky thing to do, even if you are Kelsey Plum or Chelsea Gray. There was a lot of other little stuff to that too. There were, they were, they were helping hard every time, you know, that Asia got the ball near the post, just to make sure that, you know, she wasn't getting off that easy. Even when, you know, Sue was caught on, they were really fine with her on Jackie and Jackie wasn't able to punish that matchup much. And that's something I think to look for going forward. But even when Sue was caught on Chelsea, or when she had to scram off Asia really quickly, there were always bodies swarming where that ball was and making sure that A, there were no easy looks in the post, then B, Asia wasn't getting, you know, any clean looks. A lot of like, a lot of things like peel switching um, and that bailout I mentioned sort of went into making sure the ball stuck with the guards and they weren't able to get into their usual offensive motion. And also for large parts of it, just not at all guarding Kia Stokes. Yep. <laughs> you mentioned no easy looks in the post. And I was like, well, unless your name is Kia Stokes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's teams will often go into series saying, you know, we are going to make this one person on offense beat us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they do, then there's nothing we can do because we're taking away everything the offense does well. Wrong two. And if they don't beat us, well, then that the game plan is succeeding. And it's often a little tricky with professional players really any players to make sure that they just like don't guard someone unless they get within five feet of the rim because your instinct as a player is when you see your assignment get the ball you want to close it out you want to find a shot so it can be really hard even when like a non-shooting center has the ball at the three line someone wants to close out to her so it's, it, it was genuinely impressive how much they were able to just have like tina 
double Asian the post, even when he had got the ball at the free throw line. Yeah, that discipline to stick to the game plan instead of saying, oh, Kia Stokes has maybe a wide open layup on this possession. Maybe we should try to get back to that. And the fact that she's smoked a couple definitely isn't something you want to bank on, obviously. Like uh, Chelsea Gray made this ridiculous pass when she was doubled underneath the basket to Kia and Kia just flubbed the layup with no one really contesting her. Um, I think that happened once or twice that she missed a shot directly at the hoop. Like I realize there's not guarding Kia Stokes, but then there's also you probably don't want to leave someone with an unimpeded line to the hoop like that. Uh, it's one thing if Kia Stokes is taking a free throw line jumper, like that's totally within the game plan, but I'm sure there was some little mishaps that allowed that to happen. And uh, you mentioned the Jackie Young thing where she wasn't able to win her matchup with Subert, at least not as decisively as one might think considering the physical advantages there. What other, I mean, like obviously like the offensive rating for the, the game worked out in Seattle's favor. Like that's the type of performance you want to hold Vegas to. But like after the first quarter, Vegas basically scored as well as they're expected to. I'm curious, like what changes you saw Vegas make throughout the game or like what holes in Seattle's defense you think there are still to exploit? I think a lot of, I I think a lot of Vegas's improvement after the first quarter didn't come on offense as much as it came on defense. So they, they had a huge problem in the first quarter and even parts thereafter where they were almost playing defense like they were the storm. They were trying to send two to these side ball screens. They were trying to trap in the corner. And they d- that doesn't work. I mean, that doesn't work against a number of teams, given Vegas's personnel and how they've struggled to rotate um, for really most of the season. But it doesn't work against a team like Seattle that is so good at ball movement. And at literally every position, they have a... They have a pa- they have a passer who is a plus for her position. Mm-hmm. It's it's worse when Gabby's in for the for the Aces defense, but even with Steph, she's a pretty decent passer for uh, sort of a combo forward. And you know, in that sense, they were just getting absolutely mangled whenever they were trying to send two to the ball. There was at one point I want to say it was near the end of the first quarter when they when there was a Jules Dewey side pick and roll. And there was some miscommunication between Jill and Stewie. They were looking at each other kind of funny. And eventually Stewie was like, all right, I'm just going to slip this pick and roll and get and just slide into the space. And she was just wide open. Jewel passed in between the Aces defenders. Stewie just turned around and hit an open mid-range shot. After the first quarter, Aces did that less. And what that meant was they were able to play in transition more, more efficient offense. And it also meant that Seattle had to play more transition defense, so they were less set. Yeah, and I know that Becky Hammond hit on the transition points as a, a big, uh, you know, big minus for her defense. I think it was 16-0, uh, but I think there's a difference between like playing in transition, like you mentioned, just getting that early offense versus actually getting those fast break points tallied on the box score. Like you could definitely tell that the length of possessions was at least shorter for Vegas because anytime you let either of these defenses really get into you at the end of the shot clock, like bad things happen. <laughs> And the Steph Talbot passing, I just wanted to bring up that play at the end of the game where, you know, Seattle basically gets the ball around both sides of the court and Steph ends up in the corner, drives, dishes it back out to Jewel. Um, That was just a really nice play and just a nice, nice little bit of passing from Steph Talbot, who uh, who I think was, I wouldn't say an unsung hero of that game because a lot of attention was given to how much she was uh, um, doing in Gabby Williams' absence, but absolutely an important part of that Seattle win. On the subject of Jewel Lloyd and Brianna Stewart, Stewie, I mean, sometimes in my notes, I literally just write Jesus Christ Stewie because I can't believe some of the things that she's doing offensively, like the types of shots she's hitting. But we're reaching that point with Jewel Lloyd. 
you know, in fourth quarters, like she did this against Washington. She did it again in the fourth quarter against Vegas. And I don't know, are are you concerned at all that Seattle played so well and was still at a point where they were dependent on Jewel Lloyd to hit? I mean, to be fair, like hero ball shots at the end of the game to secure the win. Like, is that a sustainable formula or is it worrisome at all? I don't think that that itself is a sustainable formula, and I would be worried about that. But the teams basically shot the same from the field and from three. You know, they both shot about 22% from three. And these are the two teams that led the league. They were essentially tied in leaving the league in three-point percentage. I want to say it was around 36, 37, 38 during the regular season. Like, Jewelard had 10 points in the fourth quarter, but she also had 16 across the first three. And... Even among those, she was missing some threes she'll normally hit. There were some layups that didn't quite connect. I mean, Stewie went 0 for 3 from 3. Tina only shot basically like 33% from the field. Sue didn't hit a 3. So I think in terms of the crunch time, you you're, you should not want to rely on that every day. But on the same token, I don't think either of these teams are going to be so reliant on crunch time because they're going to shoot them. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, there was a stretch where I think Seattle missed like 15 of 16 threes or something of that number. Like it was just a long stretch of them being unable to hit from distance that Ryan Rucco kept harping on. Maybe I don't have the exact numbers right, but you were dead on with that 36%. So thank you for that. Um, That's 36.1 for both teams. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, like I, I'm a little concerned that Seattle got to the point where they were reliant on Jewel to do that. But as a fan, it's, delightful to watch (laughs) like there just really aren't enough words to describe one like the types of shots that as I mentioned earlier Stewie was hitting throughout the game and then two the game pressure of like what Jewel Lloyd had to do at the end I mean do I wish that they had created a better possession than whatever that ISO was when they were you know up three yes but (laughs) it still creates some excitement when you know Vegas gets a chance to tie at the end personally just like watching superstars at their finest never gets old, right? And I do think that for all of the X's and O's that you've described already and all of the changes that I'm sure are to come for game two, a lot of this to me just comes down to, oh, hey, like, yeah, Seattle starts four Olympians. Vegas also starts four Olympians if we're going to count the three on three guys, but um, just watching them be at their best and whichever one of the superstars I think elevates their game the most, maybe it'll just come down to that. Like, is that too reductive or... I think that's no, no, I think that's definitely a fair perspective. And, and I mean, I'll, I'll say on Jewel, like I've had the pleasure of watching her for the past few seasons now. And I mean, my list of best players in the WNBA is not the same as the list of like my favorite players to watch. I'm watching them all over the court, Jewel Lloyd is easily atop that list. Like there is, I don't think anyone in the W who plays on both ends with the same energy and just the same ridiculousness like highlight worthiness that she plays with for i mean stewie is absolutely incredible but nothing beats like just the hilarity of jules pull ups threes yeah i mentioned earlier on twitter this season that like the three players whose jumpers i enjoy watching the most jewel lloyd is on that list and then john quell and maureen johannes but yeah there's just something very chill about jewel at all times but then also her game is also kind of frenetic and hectic like the way that she just moves around and like uh, watching her fight through screens there's just a lot going on with jewel too um even though i would say that like the overarching demeanor that she presents is very cool oh for sure there's yeah i, I haven't seen anyone take on that level of difficulty of a role 
that's just the past couple of years, like again, offensively and defensively, while also just like perfectly looking in control the yeah. entire time. The hair doesn't move. Like it's just, <laughs> it's a very chill vibe from Joel Lloyd all around. And yeah, I mean, just, just super, super cool. Mentioned Gabby Williams a bit earlier. Do you have any update on if she's going to be able to come back in Vegas or are we just waiting on maybe the games in Seattle for her to get back? I would probably win on the games in Seattle. She hasn't been in practice. So, you know, she's still trying to recover from a concussion. You know, with concussions, you never know. It was entirely possible at the point of her initial injury that she could have been ready for this past Sunday. It's entirely possible that she'll deal with this on and off for the next couple of months. You don't really, it's, it's just hard to say. I was just happy to see her tweet during game one because Gabby mm-hmm. is an A-plus tweeter. And <laughs> the fact that she's able to use the screen is probably a good sign. But yeah. That's a good point. Just a very strange thing that like, I don't, I still don't know when she got concussed and what the like, mechanism was that happened to her in that Washington game. And apparently no one in the game was aware that it happened until like she left the bench. But anyway, going from that to the other side, Ace is obviously missing D.R. Kahambi, who... Funny enough, has not played in either playoff series now that the Storm and the Aces have contested in the last three seasons. Talked about Kia Stokes and just how comfortable Seattle is playing off of her. I mean, they kind of played off of Derek and Hamby the same way during those two early regular season games. I'm curious what difference you think Hamby's presence would have made in this game and what she could add going forward if she's able to return during this series. The question differs but depending on whose perspective you're asking about, if you're asking about Seattle's or you're asking about Vegas's, I think for Seattle, it doesn't change that much in terms of their approach. D.R. Gandhi barely shot better than Kia Stokes from three this year. Yeah, she didn't make a threes. three against Seattle all season. Yeah, different volume of threes, but it's not, she is, again, the player that you look at and say, okay, you're going to beat us by either shooting or doing something that you don't normally do well. And... Hamby, specifically against the Storm, has you know historically struggled with that. I wrote a piece on Brianna Stewart's just like all world defensive play last year. I just accidentally had happened to have happened to have when I was pulling highlight clips a lot of blocks from Stewie on on Hamby. Hamby's combination of size, you know, only being six two for playing the four, and specifically what she does well, you know, just in terms of the different combo forward stuff, doesn't. It doesn't attack Seattle in the way that they need to be attacked when you're defensively. You need to be able to plug holes and be able to specifically hit shots and pressure the defense off of their rotations in a way that Hamby's Hamby's very solid at most things. But those are specialties that just don't come naturally to her in the same way that they would, I mean, you know, Asia. Wilson, obviously yeah. not the same player, but but it just in terms of that, the, the ability to either, to either shoot or drive, it does it, it's not as easy for them. But I think for Vegas, it's an interesting question because the thing that Stokes being in the lineup means is it means that Asia isn't able to play the five. I mean, you you can say she's playing the five, but in terms of how you set up your offense, it doesn't work the same because. When Stokes is on the floor and Asia's on the floor and you're trying to run a two-player game, you're trying to run a pick and roll with Chelsea Gray. If you're running with Stokes as the screener, that just means Asia's popping. Or not popping, she's just spacing somewhere. That's not a great use of her. But if Asia's rolling, that means that Stokes is spacing somewhere. And that just means that you're going to get three players from Seattle defending on the action. Poison pill. Do you think that Hamby would help defensively at all? I'm not sure, honestly. I don't. I don't know what she would add specifically to guarding Stewie or Tina Charles. I'm yeah. 
Yeah, I think of her mostly just as a body, honestly, because like I don't I don't think the Stuart matchup. I mean, it's like it's not a great matchup for anybody, but I think she'd be fine, you know, just in a pinch guarding Stewie like she has some bit of size and she's a little bit quicker than the centers that Vegas has, you know, to potentially throw out Stewie, though I thought Stokes honestly did fine in game one. Like the fact that Stewie was hitting shots over her is not really an indictment of Stokes' defense so much as it is Brianna Stewart's individual brilliance. And I mean, a seven player rotation, like it sounds shallow, but at the same time, like Vegas is kind of used to playing these minutes. So I don't know that they necessarily need another body. I'm more interested to see like what repair can bring to this series because she's the only Vegas big who you actually kind of have to defend on the perimeter. She like immediately comes in, hits her first three of the game, and it's like, oh, things look a little different. But she's also a rookie. She played half the season with Vegas. Like, I just don't know if she's ready for this series yet. And that's like no indictment on Liliana Rivera. She's 21 years old. Like, this is a, a big moment to step into. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of of the belief that like Hamby is, is a really solid player. And like, I mean, she was an all-star this year, which the fact that she was an all-star, not Chelsea Gray, still bothers me. But <laughs> I kind of just think that like, it's just another another person to like throw in to provide a little bit more energy for Vegas, which you could use. I'm just not sure. Like, like you said that her skill set is particularly important for this matchup. Yeah. I mean, that's a fair point. And I think I have sort of been doubting that some people have taken issue with Becky Hammond's, you know, regular season rotation where she was playing like most of the starters, like big minutes, like 34 minutes a game or something. And, you know, I, I always looked at that and said, you know, that, that's 32 minutes, 34 minutes is pretty normal um, by men's basketball standards. Exactly. So I don't know that there is necessarily a limit here that, you know, players can't, you can't have your whole starting lineup play in 32 minutes. And it looks like they're fine so far. You know, men's basketball players, in the NBA, you, you are expected to go down to an eight-man rotation, maybe a nine-man rotation if you have depth when you get to the playoffs and they play 48 minutes and here W plays 40 minutes. So seven player rotation, you know, you're going to want more energy, but if the players are good enough, it's going to work. I think the problem is right now that we're seeing like we're Williams is extremely hit or miss and Stokes is not someone that you want playing 30 minutes against Storm. Rupert is someone that I've really wanted to be able to sort of grow into, I mean, she's excellent for her role. She shot excellently in sort of as a functional, like, 6'4 player. And that's super exciting for Vegas. And, you know, that versatility and that shooting allows you to fix the, the problem that I had, that I said before, with, like, Asia versus Stokes rolling or spacing. But defensively, she's kind of disastrous. And you yeah. have a defensive disaster when the other team's starting front court is Stewie and Tina. Yeah, one of my favorite plays of yesterday's game was a drive that Steph Talbot took directly at Ileana Repair and finished at the rim. And Lord knows how fond I am of Stephanie Talbot's first step, but that's again like a play that maybe shouldn't be happening if you have a more solid defensive center there. You've kind of hit on this already, but how are the Aces supposed to get Asia Wilson going against this Storm defense? So one way is Ileana Rupert. Yeah. As I just said, like if you can figure out like if you can just figure out ways to get her on the court without making it a total disaster, that mostly means probably just matching her minutes to Ezzy Magregor. But then the problem you run into is Noel Quinn can just not play Ezzy Magregor more than 10 minutes and suddenly you can't play Asia though Asia in that role as much. I think other than that, you just sort of have to trust the ball movement and just keep trusting your guards to keep things going and stay in the offensive flow you had all year. 
you got to make sure the defense is where it is where it was for most of the game, just to make sure you're not, of course, def defending in transition or even semi-transition, just because of how excellent Seattle is. I think they led the league in transition efficiency this year in terms of offense. And you know, you take an average defense like Vegas, is it gets even worse in transition, of course. So that I think cleans things up a little bit for them in that sense. In that, in that sense, it also hurts Seattle. But you just have to, I think, trust, you know, what got you here and make sure that the guards, they have a better guard trio than anyone in the league by far. You just got to make sure the ball keeps moving for them and that they keep relocating, they keep hitting shots and that people open up things for Asia. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I love about Asia, I think potentially more than any superstar in the league, like her defensive effort never wanes, even based on how our offense is going. We saw it against Phoenix in that series and even against Seattle, like, Shots not going in. Like, I think she missed every shot she took in the first quarter. Still a freaking defensive menace whenever she's on the court and, like, knows how to play with two fouls pretty well. <laughs> I thought she did really, really well to um, contest shots without potentially getting called for a third early. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I would I would count on Asia just, like, individually being able to bounce back, just willing herself to it, honestly. But I do think it's interesting that for someone who did so well against Seattle during the regular season, for them to stifle her to this extent is... I don't know. It's not something I was expecting, especially considering we already saw like a quote unquote bad Asia game, at least on offense during these playoffs. I, I thought that wasn't going to happen again. I, I think if it gets bad enough, like to where I was saying, like you want repairing to get Asia to five, but you're Becky. If it gets bad enough that you need that, but also repair can't do that. I'll be interested to see if we see some um, small lineups. Yeah, exactly. Like like Plum, Williams, Gray, Jackie, Asian lineups. That you might need that. You that's really an incredible amount that. of offensive firepower. <laughs> that's probably um, the break class in case of emergency. Yeah, and I mean, they switched Jackie onto Stewie a lot in that game anyway. And I know Jackie gives up a lot of size in that matchup, but physically, at least she can kind of push Stewie away from the rim. Mm -hmm. So it's not the worst option if she's having to guard the four for you and i mean you're going to get stuck with something like raquana williams on seth talbot but like yolo you know like it's not it's not terrible yeah i think you just gotta make sure that if you're doing that you're not falling victim to the sort of thing that the clippers did when they you know had all that switchability where you're just soft switching everything mm. you make sure that you use that athleticism to your advantage and you're and you just sort of hedge to make sure that ball keeps sticking and they don't immediately find Tina or Stewie inside on, you know, someone who's six feet tall. Yeah, I'm going to have to restrain myself from providing a lot of comments about that Clippers thing. But uh, <laughs> let's let's switch over to the Storm side for a second. Uh, I kind of brought this up before we started recording today, where Seattle seems to me like the team that has improved the most in the playoffs relative to everyone that we've seen during the postseason. Like, obviously, Phoenix didn't really have a chance to be better during the playoffs. But like, of all the teams that I've watched, of these eight, they've had the most noticeable shift in terms of quality. And I think you kind of hit on this earlier with Noel Quinn experimenting during the regular season to have this switch sort of to flip during the playoffs. But one, I guess, like, do you think that's the case that they've actually looked better? Am I just reading too much into the fact that they've won three games? And if they do look better, like, why would that be? I totally agree. I think that they have sort of improved in a way. I don't know if it's necessarily improvement so much as like just doing the things that have worked for them. There's a, there's a thing that started to catch on more and more in the men's NBA where teams are 
because of what a marathon of regular season is, they're sort of working in the first half to find, you know, what works as a team in terms of players' rotations, figuring out what they are. And the second half is a lot of experimenting different things. I I don't know that this is necessarily the right origin for it, but I think of it as very, very like Nick Nurse thing in Toronto, where he will try out, you know, at least seven different zone defenses during the regular season. So that when they get to the playoffs, if they're suddenly get suddenly getting getting lit up by, you know, some second round pick rookie, they can flip to a random jump zone that will specifically focus on them in whatever way they need to. And because the players already know how to do it. I think there's a lot of teams in the WNBA that that, isn't, that thought doesn't even occur to their head coach. But this is something that we saw Seattle start doing last year when they started employing some 2-3 three, and 3-2 three, zones throughout the season. Sometimes it was because the man wasn't working, but a lot of the times it was just because they wanted to get reps against you know, Los Angeles or against Indiana last year, just to make sure that their players would knew how to do it if they needed it in the playoffs. Um, I mean, it's good teams to pick a zone against, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> And you see that a lot with the things that they're able to do right now. And I mean, first of all, a lot of that comes down to continuity. A lot of the players on their team were obviously there last year. And the ones that aren't, you know, Gabby Williams, Tina Charles, are players who are simply just excellent players and extremely knowledgeable students of the game. So you're able to go to a lot of different actions that try during the regular season, um, different types of peel switching, different amounts of hedging, icing, staying straight up, drop everything that they've done their regular season, they can flip on an instant. And that's why, like, you know, Gabby Williams for the first month and a half of the season struggled immensely offensively as a normal three. And then for the next month and a half, she was excellent as a sort of lead ball handler driver. And then for the last month of the season, it sort of looked weird again as she was moving and trying to play off Tina. And now when you got to the Washington series, it, they looked perfect just because they threw so much at the wall to figure out what would happen, what would work. Yeah, it's interesting because on the one hand, the WNBA season is shorter than the men's NBA season. So you almost feel like you have less time to experiment. But on the other hand, like two thirds of the teams make the playoffs. And with this new format, um, it's not like you're trying desperately to get one of those buys at the top of the standings. So there is room to play around and like potentially suffer one or two extra losses just because everyone makes the playoffs anyway. So that that is interesting that Seattle, I don't know, just took the time to try a bunch of nonsense you know to see what's what's going to work because they they just looked I think I mentioned this earlier they looked very disciplined right like there were a couple times when you know there was one free throw that the aces were taking where like Stewie and Sue Bird were talking to each other and like looked very not on the same page about what was happening and you'll oftentimes see Sue Bird just like throwing her arms like trying to direct people where to pass and like there are times when obviously they're not on the same page but in general I just thought that the the discipline was there in a way that it wasn't for Vegas, especially early in the game. I do think it helps that Seattle had two real games to get ready for this series where Vegas, again, all due respect to Phoenix, did not. And that just like that little bit of time that it took Vegas to get used to the fact like, oh, we're playing a really good team again, almost was was the game right there. So yeah, maybe we're just not giving Noel Quinn enough credit for how she managed the regular season. Uh, I know you've been very high on the Noel Quinn deserves more love as uh, coach of the year candidate bandwagon. Uh, I, will, I look, I had I had her second on my coach of the year ballot, and a lot of that, you know, came from a little benefit of hindsight because I sort of had an idea of what they were doing in the regular season. There, <laughs> I mean, Tina Charles for most of the time that she's been in Seattle, at least past the first couple of weeks, like repeatedly in press conferences, she has said 
you know, just how much she loves the coaching staff and how much she loves like being coached um, by people who like, you know, it's high um, praise for Vanessa Nygaard, <laughs> <laughs> but just how much, you know, how much like she wants, she has wanted to be coached in this kind of way where like, you know, people like everyone's expected to make sacrifices and everyone is expected to like work together in different ways. And, you know, I'm not saying, I like to make it very clear, I'm not saying that Noel Quinn is better than like, like Tina, but Tina Charles has played for Hall of Fame coaches before and hasn't made these kind of comments. Yeah. And uh, for all of the grief that Noel Quinn got from a lot of corners on the internet about starting Tina me. Charles, and I was on that train as well. Um, it definitely appears to have been the right decision because the defense has not been compromised to the same extent that I thought it would have been. And obviously the offense just takes an incredible leap up with Tina on the court versus Ezzy. The starting lineup with Tina not only played like, I think like the third most minutes of any lineup this season, it had the best net rating of any, not the best, sorry, it had the like fourth best net rating of any lineup in the league in minimum like a hundred minutes. It yeah. was, and and I thought it was really silly that when they started with Tina, they were like winning like a 3-2 zone for like a couple of weeks because like Seattle's schemes are hard to learn and Tina's also not that great of a defensive center. But but I I think that doing that allowed them to get Tina with the starters for more minutes as soon as possible. And that led to the chemistry they've been able to build even as Tina was still learning the playbook. It's not a move I would have ever thought of, but I think it was genuinely genius. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like you protect her out there by playing zone. You get her minutes with the starters, just like you said, and then you gradually sprinkle in all of the supremely fun stuff that Seattle does defensively, <laughs> which just would not have been possible if you had sprung that on her right away. Like it's barely possible when Ezzy's in there, honestly. Like they do a lot of a lot of weird stuff. Was there anything that you wanted to add about Seattle going forward that we should be looking out for that you like didn't see in game one? Stuff that you think they should still be willing to try out? I would personally never play the Sue Bree Piff backcourt again. Uh, just for the love of God, don't play that ever again. I know that I know that Noah was trying to steal some minutes for Joel, mm-hmm. steal some minutes for Steph. But good Lord, that lineup was a negative four in three minutes. Yeah, the, the Bree Piff minutes, it's probably the one strike that I've had against Noel Quinn all year. <laughs> Both of them have their time and their place, and it's not together. Yeah, but I understand that like Bree has as a place in the series, you know, just mm-hmm. that extra defense off the bench, especially with Gabby Williams unavailable and having another ball handler in Piff who sometimes just like shows up and hits a couple threes in a row. And like that's incredibly valuable for someone coming off the bench. But yeah, I'm with you. The Sue, Bree, and Piff together, just like red alarm starts blaring in my head. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Anything good you think we can expect from Seattle going forward that we didn't maybe see in game one? Sue Bird scoring more than two points. I mean, maybe that would require like some turnovers on her part. Possibly. <laughs> I think, but I think I, I think one of the adjustments for Seattle is always like, oh, hey, we have like starting at the two, three, four, and five, we have like these scores and shooters. And now you've forgotten that Sue Bird, like, you know, can hit 40% off the catch, which like the Mystics did in the uh in game two. Yeah, I think she was just one of those uh, storm players who missed a couple shots that you might have expected to go in otherwise. Uh, I don't think she took that many. I have box score open right now. Subird took six shots. Yeah, so one out of six is probably a little bit lower than you'd expect out of Subird. But Mm -hmm. even then, like, I don't know that, like, getting Subird more than six shots is probably the best choice for the storm offense, especially not when she's just whipping dimes like she was in game one. That's, I mean, that's aesthetically the most pleasing version of Subird is those alley passes. Goodness gracious. <laughs> oh, no, I, it's incredible. But 
but, but I think it's more like there will be less assists as Vegas mm-hmm. tries to tighten up on the other players, and then there's more shots. Yeah. And the beauty of it is that, like you said, she's a 40% off the catch player and can absolutely pull up and make those shots happen if need be. Em, thank you so much for coming aboard to talk about the storm. Is there anything that you wanted to plug about what you're working on during the WMA playoffs? At the moment, nothing in particular. You know, it's just a pleasure to be on here. Over at the next, we are uh, releasing our staff picks for the WNBA end of season awards. So those will essentially come out a little before each of the W's. You know, as the season goes on, hopefully just, you know, being able to keep covering the Seattle team and seeing what life has in store for all of their different characters. Thank you so much for taking the time. I am definitely going to be following your coverage of the storm and really appreciate you coming here. 